brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. You know, off and on, you hear me talk about the need for more comprehensive coverage of extraterrestrial visitations, what Dr. A.V. Lopes calls the consideration for potential alien probes, and just what our scientists can expect when we have first contact. Today, we relish the return of Dr. Heather Lynn, Professor Lynn, who is a uh, a field archaeologist, and a new book that she's written called The Final Frontier, Xenoarchaeology and the Interplanetary Search for Lost Civilizations. This is it. This is what we've been looking for, an in-depth perspective on what we will find on planets like Mars, who have great evidence of uh, archaeological ruins, and what happens when we have first contact, how we're prepared for it, how the scientific community will be prepared for it, and what we can expect from the disclosure of off-world civilizations. All this in a perspective from Bruce Fenton on... Earth Ancients. Saturday, July 2nd, 2022, this is Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. I am very excited to uh, be presenting this program this week with uh, Dr. Heather Lynn. We haven't had Heather on for about a year. She typically is an annual presenter uh, on Earth Ancients simply because she's constantly looking at the anomalies that are coming up. And as a teacher, as a professor in college, she uh, looks at things academically, but she admits it herself. She's kind of a rogue archaeologist who looks 
but also evaluates and is very creative in, in some of her thinking and some of her theories on what we can expect. Her new paper, her new book, I should say, The Final Frontier, Xenoarchaeology and the Interplanetary Search for Lost Civilization comes out this fall. Uh, I really had a great uh, interview with her. You'll hear it here in a few minutes. But I wanted to bring on our science editor, Bruce Fenton. Bruce has written extensively about his theory uh, on uh, ET contact. In his case, it was uh, tens of thousands of years ago that there was a a huge ship that was uh, wrecked or uh, destroyed and basically uh, marooned on our planet, planet Earth. Uh, And we'll talk about that again some other time. But uh, Bruce, how are you doing, man? How you been? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well, Cliff. Thank you for having me back on. It's been a while. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, good to you, and hopefully you're doing very well. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, enjoying the summer. It's uh, it's it's uh, comfortable so far. We've had a couple of hot days, but otherwise it's comfortable. First off, the Final Frontier article, based on this upcoming book, I think looks at archaeology or the ruins of an ancient uh, civilization in, in, in a different perspective. And uh, one of the areas that I thought was refreshing and I'm curious about your your uh, your mindset is that Heather tries to be very transparent with the data. She even says in this article that uh, one of the important considerations is is public dis- dis- disclosure. What do you think about this article first of all and, and most importantly we don't have all kinds of time but I want to get your opinion on how this data would be disclosed to the general public. Yeah, I think first say it's an interesting article, and I think it's um, based on excerpts from her book, which you know looks really well put together and really intriguing. She's definitely, what I'd say, is ahead of the curve in this kind of this field where we have, you know, Avi Loeb in particular is kind of already been proposing that we need a kind of a xenoarchaeology or you know space archaeology that's revised to look for traces of alien civilizations in, in new ways, in archaeological ways. And the overlap there as well is in this transparency. So because he's he's talked about this as well, that there's a need for avoiding the secrecy, you know, and these government mm. contracts and <laughs> cover-ups. And so I mean Heather's obviously, yeah, she's kind of tapping into that same thinking that we need to have a framework that allows the public to actually see any discoveries that are made kind of I guess in real time uh, as much as possible. Um from what she kind of touches on, I think that, you know, she found that there's, of course, there's legal and kind of ethical and political concerns around transparency. And I think we can infer that the idea is that, well, what if we find something and it's in some sense considered sensitive to the powers that be, you know, uh, they're going to want to have some kind of control over dissemination of that. And, you know, I, I would obviously take a bit of an issue with that. I think you would, and obviously so does I think Heather and Abby that that really what we want is real time sharing of evidence, and I think that's yeah. what the public deserve in this, not this kind of sort of you know, stalling it all so that the the powers that be can decide how we process this. Hmm. One of the things I thought was interesting, and I, and I immediately thought of you, is that uh, in your hypothesis there was a, and I think this is a couple hundred thousand years ago, a ship broke up in the Earth's atmosphere after being uh, hit with a mm-hmm. some kind of a weapon. And there is evidence of these uh, crystalline uh, ship parts all over mm-hmm. a certain part of, I believe, is Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, under this new scenario that Heather presents, um, do you uh, have hope that perhaps uh, the research you've done will be brought to light? Yeah, I think that, to be honest, I mean, there's a few discoveries. And I know that we had a little bit of a talk before, of course, about um, Professor Wainwright's work, you know, which is a good example where oh, evidence right. of yeah, you know, evidence of a possible you know, alien technology is detected. And, you know, he seems to have detected that strange uh, panspermia seed, you know, the metal sphere that I think yeah. some listeners will know uh, had this organic material coming out. I mean, I think objects like that and the material that I deal with, these tectites, you know, these are targets for this new field of xenoarchaeology because even if not everyone, say, is on board with these being evidence of aliens, I mean, we have to start with the possible candidates, Right. So we have things like, you know, Wainwright's fear, uh, my tech type argument uh, and perhaps a couple of other you know, cases. Uh, so you would think the field would then this new field would jump on those because they've got to start at least practicing their discipline somewhere. Yes. Exactly. Uh, so it makes yeah. to me, it makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. that they would come in with a skeptical but open minded approach to these kinds of claims because there's not hundreds of different, you know, claims. There's, there's basically a very small number at the moment, uh, of course, outside of the UFO field. I mean, UFOs are, are very difficult to scientifically analyze because you have to have, you know, something there to hold in your hand, right? Or some right. image or something that's clear. So I, I think that, yeah, the, the discipline that she's looking at is perfect for the kind of research I'm doing. And I absolutely support the founding of a kind of a, a xenoarchaeology field. I mean, I also, I consider what I'm doing a kind of, um, well, I refer to it as geological and genomic SETI, you know, that we're using the geologic layers and genomic evidence to do a search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, of course, um, Lynn is usually looking more at the archaeological side, but this all, it fits together. You know, if you use what we can see in the geology, in the genomics and in archaeology, and we search for techno signatures, basically technological traces of aliens in all these different fields, we're going to broaden the possibilities of multiple finds. And I think that, yeah, we've got to found a field that does that. It combines these different uh, avenues of science, but with a focus on identifying alien intelligence. So yeah, absolutely. It's uh, to me, it's a hand in glove fit uh, for what she's proposing and the work I'm doing. I I'm uh, uh concerned basically on this uh, secrecy that the U.S. military has imposed on ET research. I mean, changing UFOs, the terminology to UAPs, Unidentified Aerial aerial Phenomenon, is curious to me. Do you have a sense, of course, and you're in, uh, in, in Britain, the U.K., and you have equal secrecy and perhaps ET cover-up. Uh, in all parts of different, you know, of, uh, of, of where you're at. So you're not unfamiliar <laughs> with the cover up, but mm-hmm. what, how do we force the military or smooth a path for them to be less likely to cover things up that are mm-hmm. alien based? Yeah, I think, you know, part of this is going to have to be uh, having multiple independent scientific projects that are all working uh, in, in somewhat related to similar ways, but, you know, they're all offering transparency. So that it becomes very difficult for governments or military to kind of just tell them all what to do, especially if they're international, 
because then, you know, it's going to be very difficult for, say, you know, a British uh, intelligence unit to tell the Japanese what to do or or the U.S. to tell the Brazilians what to do. So I think as we move into this kind of growing interest in this topic, and we're starting to see groups like the Galileo Project, um, there's UAPX in the U.S., and we've got um, the, I think there's the sort of SSE, you know, those guys, I think they do some elements of this. But as you start to get more teams appearing i think it's going to become more and more difficult for governments and military and intelligence to control all of the narrative especially if each of those kind of commits to sharing their findings in real time you know because right. at the moment it's all kind of controlled under government funding you know which is kind of problematic because of course that allows for uh, closing the lid on interesting finds uh, fairly easily right uh, so I, I think that's going to be the, the key to this is a lot more kind of private uh institutes and stuff that go about these topics in a way that's not directly under government control okay and i hear that from you i um here in the united states they're they're i believe they're still adherent to the uh uh, brookings institute document that basically says even as out of touch as it is that that we uh, people when they learn of uh first contact an et race uh or artifact or actual face-to-face communication that uh, we're going to freak out. The United States citizens are going to freak out and religions are going to end things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your sense of that? And what's your sense of, as we close uh, together, mm-hmm. why the United States military would change the branding of us uh, UFOs to UAPs. And is that kind of a, uh, a foretelling of the future of more disclosure or, or changes in how they an, analyze ET technology? Well, I think it's kind of interesting because UAP, you know, is unexplained aerial phenomena in a way is actually more vague than uh, an identified flying object. Cause of course an object gives it a kind of definitive physical structure. Mm-hmm. Whereas right. a fun, you know, an aerial phenomena is very vague, isn't it? You know, that could be clouds or strange electrical activity, you know, as well as, craft so i think they've actually made it more vague which is interesting and the other thing that's allowed is for nasa seems to have used that to come in and say well you know we deal with aeronautic phenomena and atmospheric phenomena so nasa have pivoted and said they're going to do a project so i wonder if that was part of the planning to allow you know to encourage nasa to be brought into this sort of government conversation who are now saying they're going to start looking at these uaps that's perhaps that's enabled that in a way that ufos was you know problematic for them because it suggests they would look for alien spaceships um but but i think maybe this uap change has allowed nasa to come into it in a new way Uh, that's my suspicion because now we're seeing that they are putting in an initial hundred thousand dollars to form a uap kind of task force or something like that nasa yeah so it does to me it seems that that was part of why they've done this rebranding is to move away from physical objects and spaceships and make it nice and vague so that they can bring in uh, more scientists into this without the, so much of the stigma but the UAP topic funnily enough UAP actually was the original uh, acronym back in the i think it's the 40s the military were actually using that uh, for UFOs so it's gone kind of full circle and i think that's really funny when you think about it so we've almost in the loop with that UFO topic which uh, it has been kind of stuck for 70 years. So it's funny that it would actually loop back to UAP. <laughs> it's just crazy. weird. It's just yeah. really strange. Hey, Bruce, as always, great to connect with you and uh, uh, hear about your opinion and uh, what's going on with you. What's what's happening with you? 
Yeah, I'm just um, doing a, some final edits on my scientific paper on the possible uh, interstellar object uh, behind the tektites and the, how they may be a techno signature. So I'm just getting that done. So I'm really hopeful that at last, I know a lot of listeners have probably thought, God, he's taken a long time with that paper. <laughs> I mentioned it. Yeah. <laughs> a few times. Well, we'll have to get you back when you're, when you're done with that. So yeah, pretty soon I'll have it out. Then I'll definitely keep you up to date. It should be in the next few days. I'll have it tidy enough to, for you to read. Excellent. All right. Hey, Bruce, this was great. I uh, appreciate the insight and we will look forward to having you back uh, on the program to talk about this paper you're writing. So, hey, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, actually, great conversation and uh, you'll speak to you very soon. All right. So we're on to uh, the next portion of our program. We're going to hear from Dr. Heather Lynn and her upcoming book, The Final Frontier, Xenoarchaeology and the Interplanetary Search for Lost Civilizations. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
talked a great deal about first contact. We've had astronomers. We had Dr. A.V. Loeb on the program talking about what he believes are alien probes. But we haven't talked on how to approach the identification, how we look at ET technology. And if we have a first contact where we're sending uh, space missions to the moon, to the Mars, or to other planets, and we bump into archaeological ruins, how do we approach that? How do we identify that uh, these are uh, intelligent beings? Uh, How do we discern their writing? These are questions that I've been talking about for years, and no one's really addressed until now. Uh, My guest, my returning guest today is Dr. Heather Lynn. We've had Heather on a number of times. She is about to release a new book called The Final Frontier, Xenoarchaeology and the Interplanetary Search for Lost Civilizations. And I got to tell you, this article that she wrote, which is kind of a prelude to her upcoming book, uh, I should have mentioned that ahead of time, this article that we are talking about today is a fantastic look at scientific approach to ET technology, ET ruins, and just the whole gamut of topics that we really need to look at. And the question is, uh, is NASA or U.S. Space Command actually addressing these uh, questions? So we're going to find out today. Heather, welcome back to Earth Ancients. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, this is great. a great article. I really enjoyed it on, on so many different levels. What, what uh, sparked your interest in uh, wanting to write an entire book on the topic of uh, extraterrestrial archaeological uh, discovery? Well, I just thought it was a very underserved area. I mean, a lot of people are inter- <laughs> a lot of people are interested in the search for extraterrestrial life, but they're not necessarily talking about uh, the implications or even the methodology. How would we go about? looking for evidence from previous civilizations, if in fact there are previous civilizations. Um, So I think uh, mostly there is a lack of interdisciplinary study and cooperation. And that's something I wanted to address and bring to the forefront is this idea that it's going to take more than just, say, astronomers, physicists, mathematicians, or astrobiologists, that there are cultural ramifications and social science implications that, you know, we're going to need to address. And uh, I started researching this and finding that there are a lot of interesting articles already published in journals about these topics, yet there is this inconsistent terminology, uh, which is demonstrative of the sort of siloing of the entire study. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I can go through and and pull some of this together in a more unified look and take it from maybe that hard science edge and add a soft science approach to it. Because I think it's going to take both, you know, to, to fully understand something so massive as the possibility of the existence of ancient extraterrestrial life on other planets. Exactly. What's your sense? What's your intuition on what, U.S. Space Command, uh, NASA, JPL may have uh, discovered at this point. I mean, the, uh, JPL sends rovers to the moon, to Mars. We'll talk a little bit later about uh, the contributions we've gotten from space scientists on on Mars. But 
What, what, do you have any sense of what may be lurking behind closed doors? <laughs> well, not with uh, any sort of military information. You know, I, I'm sure that um, they know more than they're letting on even now with the so-called uh, disclosure they've been up to with these congressional hearings or, or you know, what have you. Uh, but what I've come to find in my own research is that a lot of what has been known, at least in the scholarly sense, has been put out there, published and discussed for uh, at least a decade, if not a little over a decade. And so um, there was a journal of space policy. And uh, I think in probably 12 years ago, maybe 2010, roughly, uh, they had an entire uh, peer-reviewed article discussing a call for proactive xenoarchaeological guidelines. It was scientific policy and socio-political considerations. And this entire article uh, goes on to suggest at least developing a methodology, a policy protocol and, and uh, political considerations. So, and it's, it's why it's published, but like most things, it seems difficult to acquire some of the research because it's behind paywalls. It's in journals that are Usually, you have to have academic credentials to access through these academic databases. Or if you go to a public library, they may have that ability. But uh, so it, it takes a little, quote, digging, no pun intended, yeah. uh, to get to that. Uh, but it is there. And but it's just not readily known. I think, unfortunately, there's this sensationalized component to this study in mass media that, you know, has depictions of aliens and, you know, little green men and, and right. you know, scientists are just not taking this seriously at all. It's just silly, but that's not the case. There's plenty of studies that have been, uh, you know, peer reviewed and uh, published that discuss everything from technical issues and considerations all the way to uh, geopolitical, uh, you know, considerations as well. Mm. Before we get into some of the new terminology that you have developed in this uh, article, which is is the book, you must be familiar with the Brookings Institute document that NASA uh, had uh, uh, consulted uh, with in 1960, where basically one of the uh, topics is uh, uh, if first contact is made, uh, the public will not react well. Religions will uh, be uh, compromised and uh, the United, it was written for the United States citizenship. And uh, they go on to say something like uh, uh, this will be traumatic for, for the citizens. Now I'm under the belief that the U S space command and NASA are antiquated when it comes to social norms. Of course, we do know that uh, uh, NASA did go out and get 24 theologians and ask them what their opinion is. We're, we're still waiting to hear what the, the result of that is, but personally, uh, uh, when you read something like the Brookings Institute document, uh, and you have to wonder if they're adherent to this because of the secrecy that is going on uh, in the face of tens of thousands of sightings of UFOs, uh, which are now UAPs, unidentified alien phenomena. What's your feeling on that? I feel that the uh, the Brookings study, the proposed studies, activities for human affairs from 1960 uh, or 61, I think it's 1960, uh, antiquated. So perhaps there is 
you know, relevant information in there still, but I really think that it's one of these uh, antiquated pieces that <laughs> needs a real update, uh, to say the least, especially in light of uh, where we are as a culture and society. Um, as I stated in the article, um, I put some stats up, just, just a few little stats from uh, Pew Research Center that show that most Americans say intelligent life exists outside the earth and they don't see UFOs or UAPs as a major security threat. Uh, now, whether or not they are is not the question, but the question being that most Americans believe that you know, they exist, that there's something. So 65%, they believe intelligent life exists on other planets. Um, and so to this day, I, this needs updated. I think if you would to go back to 1960 and ask the same question, which, you know, I bet if you do a little research, you probably could find uh, some of those studies, some of those uh, polls, at least. Uh, I would, I would mm-hmm. suspect that a far, far more um, Americans believe with the media and just the sort of cultural nudging of these issues, I think that Americans at least, uh, and, you know, South America, there's so many different people now, many different cultures because of the internet who have uh, started looking into the UFO phenomenon and these sorts of things. And so they've, you know, their public has been exposed to information um, more rapidly and their acceptance has grown even quicker than we have. So if you were to look at it in this larger scale, I think that we would see more people believe in something. And so uh, the idea that we wouldn't be ready, a valid point, but I think it needs to be revisited knowing what we know now about people's uh, increasing acceptance of the possibility that we're not alone. Yeah. When I, when I read this um, article and uh, the other information that NASA was reaching out to the, uh, the religions, theological group of 24 different uh, uh, priests or, or, or pastors or whatever, I thought to myself, wouldn't it have been smarter to go to social media like Facebook, Instagram, whoever, and get a sense of what they're all about rather than these stodgy, in many cases, out of touch theologians uh, who don't really follow current events. I would think that the discovery of an alien civilization would be top of the social media uh, uh, mountain. Wouldn't you? Yes, but that everything is done with a, you know, maybe a sense of benevolence and having our uh, best wishes, um, you know, at heart, I think my personal view is that they would go to these stodgy uh, individuals because uh, <laughs> they are for information from them as much as they are looking to give them the information on how they could be uh, leaders in communicating some of the things that maybe scientists have found out or are anticipating that they will find out. So sort of an intermediary to break the news to us, you know, us followers or lay people, which is, I think, why they have uh, the 24 theologians. It was comprised of, you know, the world's different religions. So mm. it was this, I, I, I'm, I'm suspecting it was more of a, okay, guys, let's get together. And uh, if we find something out, what are we going to tell everybody? We need to be on the same page because of this, potential threat that this could bring to world religions and social cohesion uh, that at least that they believe could be. So if we were to find out that there is an advanced 
you know, life form on another planet and they're able to travel or even communicate. Uh, what does, what does that mean for our future and, and our culture? Will that then take credibility away from the old systems, these systems of, you know, believing in this religion or that religion or gods or beings in such ways? There's so many different questions and implications. I think that ultimately the fear is that it would upend the social order. And so to get ahead of that, I think they want to, figure out a plan to maintain some control on the social order so that people don't panic perhaps. Yeah. I, I, I think you hit on the, nose. the term uh, control is a big one. What if uh, we, we bump into uh, an alien race that has documentation uh, that, and they're a thousand years advanced of us. And they basically say religions are uh, not good for the biological entity whatsoever. <laughs> well, and yes, and this something that is not just a uh, cynical in, in uh, say, um, you know, anti-government or conspiracy. This is the, a very direct uh, example of this is uh, it, sort of what I look at, you know, cuneiform, tablets, this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big issues that we had coming into researching Sumerian civilization altogether is that when it was discovered, they were able to finally translate these tablets and found that a lot of them were Old Testament Bible stories that were predating the supposed date of the Old Testament by thousands of years. Wow. And retelling stories or telling the story, say, of Noah's Ark or, you know, many different stories and differently too. And in that time with this research and they found, you know, the translations, they knew, you know, academics that were able to look at this and they made a conscious decision at that time, which was like late Victorian, early Edwardian period, you know, um, which was a, a very sort of uh, Christianized, um, puritanical time in Western culture, particularly in Britain. And, uh, and, and in America as well, but more so in Britain, where a lot of this research was coming from. So they looked at this and said, yeah, we can't go real public with this information because this is going to uh, cast a doubt on the Bible. A lot of this idea where people will say to me, oh, why have these Sumerian you know, suppressed and why, why is this secret? And well, it's not as secretive now. It was just this sort of tradition of don't ask, don't tell kind of, mm, you know, yeah. don't offer too much because the initial thing was, well, we don't want to come out with this information and panic everybody and make them doubt Christianity or, you know, Abrahamic religions in general. So you had this split between academic new and then what the public knew, what they allowed the public to no, which was more towards a don't don't question the Bible, and so that was only you know roughly a little over a hundred years ago. And so what's the, what would have changed? You know, this idea that we would find something else. Now, academics uh, who are usually in nature may find something. Let's not come out with this completely because we don't want to shake up the current belief systems and. Uh, you know, that way they're able to maintain control of that information and not specifically lie and say they've not found yeah. anything, but at the same time, not be very uh, transparent. A little later, so there's precedent set for that. 
a little later, we're going to talk a little more about that. Uh, in this um, article, you have developed some new terminology for this archaeological uh, research into ET ruins. Uh, we, we would think typically it would be called space archaeology, but you have a couple of different terms, exo-archaeology and xeno-archaeology. Let's start with exo. What is the what does that mean in terms of scientific research? Well, I thought that it was important to sort of at least put out there have been used, are currently being used, and perhaps should be used, uh, for my opinion. As I said, when you look at the uh, sort of cross-discipline search, you, you see these topics discussed, and they start developing terminology and that can make it a little confusing. And so I know you had Dr. Loeb on recently, and he refers in his uh, excellent book, Extraterrestrial, he refers to the um, to the search as astroarchaeology. Um, and so, again, from his perspective, that's a, a very legitimate way of looking at it. But there's also been, uh, over the past 15 years, a terminology that's already been uh, proposed and therefore People have used it to publish articles on this. And so being that this is such a young discipline or, or methodology proposed, uh, it's going to have that sort of inconsistency with terminology. And so I made an effort to at least, you know, roughly put out some of uh, what to expect when you're digging through this research. And so with exoarchaeology, um, it's that's one of the oldest terms that, that was used to describe space archaeology and xenoarchaeology. And it's fallen out of favor again this is in the literature it's definitely something people use in media or pop culture uh, but in the literature if you're researching that term has fallen out of favor um, as space archaeology has become more honed in on its definitions and goals and methodology um, and space archaeology it really goes back to that space archaeology um, developed and it is now a, a a very substantial field. Uh, it does not address extraterrestrial artifacts or the sorts of things that we may be talking about, but rather the items left by humans in space, mm. specifically humans. So space archaeology includes uh, researching the American flag left on the moon, um, space junk satellites, uh, and other specifically man-made orbital debris. Mm. And so there's now a whole field for this in the preservation of it, the study of it. Um, and so these historians and archaeologists looking into those activities and uh, that's what they refer to now as space archaeology. So then the older term for what we think of as space archaeology, archaeology, but it's not used as much either now. The debates in conferences over whether or not combining the prefix exo with archaeology is helpful or perhaps more accurately applied to the study of ancient human activities in space. And so as it stands, sort of space archaeology is leaning towards this. It's actually pretty well developed. So space archaeology would be people studying the debris that humans have left. And mm. then the exoarchaeology would be uh the study of ancient human activities in space. So like us going to the moon and maybe having a footprint and see okay. what's interesting is when you, when you look at this, I know for me, it feels sort of like this is all new 
awesome technology. But when you think about how long ago we started going into space, you know, the 1960s, this sort of thing, um, that's actually a, a relevant historical time period. Like so much time has passed now. There are full, uh, you know, researchers looking at those cultural implications because that's just mm. been such a long time ago. Mm. So now, so there's space archaeology and then the exoarchaeology. So that leaves what people have been referring to as xenoarchaeology, um, spelled X-E-N-O, and then archaeology. Right. Um, and that has... Uh, that has a presence in the existing scientific literature that is used to describe the study of material evidence of astrobiological activity. And so that would be any artifact by living biological entities from space. So it may not be um, uh, specifically how we may think of it, like an alien per se. Um, it's a broader term. So that allows for a broader interpretation because you know, living biological entities, large, small, it wouldn't matter. It's anything that was then created by, or, you know, an artifact left by those in space. So that comes. Would you say that mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Loeb's uh, uh, definition of the Omaomawa probe, would that fall under the exo or or Xeno archaeology? Pardon me. Well, see, that's difficult to say because we still don't know what that is. And that's why, you know, I mean, I think that that's part of his um, interest is that, yeah. that we don't know if that was something. Well, we could say we didn't make it. So humans didn't make it. So it yeah. wouldn't necessarily be space archaeology because we didn't make it. And then okay. in terms of um, exoarchaeology, um, we didn't, it, there wasn't human activity in space involving that. So what we have with space archaeology and exoarchaeology are more human-centered disciplines, whereas that xenoarchaeology, it allows for the possibility of something other. And gotcha. so that one, I think, would fall more closely under xenoarchaeology. Okay. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, in, the article, in the article you wrote, you say, there is a very real question to ask about the science theory Development and implications of xenoarchaeology programs. And then you give us four questionable areas that I'd like you to address. What role will artificial intelligence have? And, and I think what you're saying in this first question is, will we have robots? Will we have uh, perhaps uh, by the time this uh, major discoveries are found, sentient technology that can make decisions for us? Or give us some uh, an idea what you mean by the role that AI will have. Absolutely. The, so when we, when we think about xenoarchaeology, um, there are proposed guidelines. Uh, now these guidelines aren't necessarily widely accepted. Um, they've just been proposed and there have been, uh, you know, peer reviewed research sort of adopting these. And I happen to think they're helpful. Uh, my hope is that through more collaboration and discussion and interdisciplinary cooperation, we can solidify these and have an actual scientific uh, plan moving forward for the investigation into some of these um, possibilities. And so um, the applicability of xenoarchaeological guidelines sets out three different scenarios. The first one is remote sensing. And this was the sort of likely first practical application of a methodology at all. And that involves, so just discovery of evidence from 
uh, telesensory feedback, non-human investigators. So like orbiting uh, spacecraft, robotic landers, rovers, probes, and that sort of thing. And that would include AI. Mm. So if, you know, we were able to, at first phase, uh, check out some of these objects or celestial bodies using landers, but also rovers or somehow AI, you know, the different things they've been using, like uh, hoping to develop for uh, like the movie Avatar, this idea that we'd have some sort of robotic um, thing out there probe wise. And then we would be able to um, interface in such a way that it could feel like we're on a particular planet or whatnot, oh, um, yeah, yeah, getting yeah. that information ourselves because there's, yeah. there's those practical limitations to, to the investigation abilities with a human being, obviously. And so, um, so the first scenario with remote sensing is remote sensing and that, um, you know, is still restricted by our level of technology um, and things like ground-based sensory equipment, um, but also, you know, these rovers or probes and that sort of thing. The, the second scenario is the human exploration component. And that has many more advantages um, over remote sensing. However, it's there's clear practical physical limitations. Uh, mm-hmm. So investigators in this regard are confined physically uh, because they're on Earth generally. If not, if we were able to get them off Earth and maybe going to a different environment, they still are limited in their personal protective equipment. So things like ability to use um, their own perception is is stymied as well. And they're limited temporarily uh, by the field duration of life support equipment, resources, and supplies. And so that would then also say, well, ideally, it would be a human being able to be on location exploring. So, you know, but if that is not possible or practical, how can we use a mix of scenario one, remote sensing, and scenario two, human exploration? And that could be uh, conceivable through introducing artificial intelligence in sort of that science fiction avatar sense. Um, with the third and final scenario uh, proposed being terrestrial interception. This scenario involves uh, perception, uh, interception rather of a, a meteor, asteroid, comet, or a sample somehow, um, sample from those for evidence of astrobiological activity. And so this is sort of like, uh, I would say, what Dr. Loeb is hoping to do with the debris from the meteor, uh, CNE, C-N-E-O-S dash, you know, 2014 dash 0108, uh, the one that was confirmed in 2014 to have landed right, on right. the ocean floor near Papua New Guinea. Yes. So he wants to retrieve material from this meteor and study whether it's artificial in origin. That would fall under the third scenario, which they refer to as terrestrial interception. And so those are the three primary ways that we would be able to do that. So with AI, you could sort of easily see how that a great help if we're limited in methodology, methodological approach to remote sensing, human exploration, and then the even uh, terrestrial interception, whether it's that we fly some something out and, uh, you know, take a, a sample from some sort of asteroid or whether or not we can get something that landed on the ocean floor and have a sample. Yeah, uh, he was, uh, Avi was on the program a few months ago talking about the half million dollars it'll take to dredge the bottom of the ocean <laughs> two miles down and to pick up drop 
bite-sized fragments of this uh, burnt-up meteor that he believes, because of the rate of of burn, was uh, an exotic metal. So who knows what he'll find? It just seems like, you know, (laughs) talk about needle in a haystack. It it is, and you know, it's 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 it sounds like a lot of money because it would be if you know if you won it in the lottery, that's a lot of money. But it's not really a lot of money in terms of the uh, you know ability to research this. A, a lot more studies are funded using um, a lot more money that have a lot less of an interesting outcome. So um, mm. I would hope that he would get. Uh, at least close to getting that kind of funding for that research. But, you know, that's always where it lies is people yeah. say all the time to me, why aren't they researching this? Why aren't they looking more into this? Why haven't they translated these tablets? And, uh, you know, as much as it, you can point to one conspiracy or the other, often it just comes down to funding or a lack of funding. You yeah. Know? It's funny um, you mentioned that because I have, uh, when I started this podcast, was very angry at, arche- at the archaeological community for not doing more thorough research. And then I started interviewing archaeologists that are like, we just don't have the money. We, right. It's true. It's like, we would if we could, but they won't fund it. You know, yeah. so, and, and where you get the funding and that, you know, that, that opens up that whole problem of uh, who's funding what and why. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, unfortunate corruption in that area. So a lot of the things that, you know, I think that's why a lot of uh, more interesting research is done under, say, the Department of Defense or Pentagon, and because there's those those budgets. So, you know, that leads into that second question, um, you know, that I sort of pose in that article is, is there a secret extraterrestrial archaeological research program? And, you know, that's something that I've been wondering myself. And I've been trying to get to the bottom of, of uh, thought, well, you know, uh, is, is this being funded elsewhere? Is this falling under some sort of a defense budget? Uh, and, and the more I look into it, the more I think, yes, that is, that is something that I believe is, is more likely than not. We're going to take a short commercial break and we will be right back with Dr. Heather Lynn. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My guest today is Dr. Heather Lynn. She is a professor teaching at a university a field archaeologist who has written an article based on an upcoming book called The Final Frontier, Xenoarchaeology and the Interplanetary Search for Lost Civilizations. This is a detailed look on what an archaeological team would be seeking, uh, when first contacts made, uh, this is a, an artifact, a ruined city, or some form of unknown technology that is not from Earth. Well, that was my um, uh, next question to you, uh, Heather, is the fact that, you know, NASA's given billions of dollars every year. Uh, same thing with the U.S. Space Command. We have no idea because they probably go into black ops programs that are funded to the, you know, multiple billions of dollars. But if there is an active program going on right now with these uh, uh, space programs, how would we ever get the information? How would a university that wants to put together a uh, archaeological program that addresses what you're talking about, how would they know? <laughs> That's very difficult. Absolutely. Well, then, because they there would be many knowledge gaps because of the sort of, again, siloed information pockets between what governments have, what academic institutions have, and some academic institutions that are tied in with the government or, you know, they're at a clearer advantage. But then you also have private companies now entering the, the equation. And when you have private companies, uh, you know, even in a small sense, if you have, say, a cultural resource management firm, and they were hired by the government to come in and do surveying before the government were to say put in a new road, you know, what they have to do is make sure under law that there isn't, you know, Native American burial grounds or cultural material there. And so they're hired in, but to, to do that research to clear the way. However, they are a private company. They could be, you know, uh, just so and so and associates cultural resource management. What ends up happening then with the findings of their research uh, is that goes into what they lovingly refer to as gray material, which uh, was sort of a, a nod to putting it in a metal, a gray metal sort of steel case filing system to be lost and never found because it, it would be owned technically by the, the owners of that business. And so it's not in the public trust. Whereas with a university, uh, in theory, they would go take tax money and funds and their nonprofits. So even tuition would go into that mix and however they do the budget, 
and they would go fund some research. But then that research, the results of that belong to everybody, you know, because it's, it's in the public trust. Yeah. So they publish that. Well, there's a lot of, uh, you know, chicanery going on with that now with, with larger public companies, not just little cultural resource management firms, but you have SpaceX, you have large firms who have a vested interest and yes, they cooperate of course with um, governments, but who owns that data and, and what's going on? Well, those that's decided on, they know, but, but the people don't necessarily have that level of transparency. So it's very, it's very fragmented. And it's going to be very difficult to really put this all together. And, uh, you know, just as modern archaeology uh, in a terrestrial sense relies on its practitioners to employ sort of interdisciplinary understanding of things like geology, geography, anthropology, and sociology, um, xenoarchaeology would require an interdisciplinary approach too. The, the sociopolitical pressures surrounding, you know, the whole thing uh, just make it more likely to have strict adherence, a, a, a stronger need for a strict adherence to a proactive methodology that we could all understand and get, get, you know, behind, or at least have some sort of way to communicate that. And I'm not sure if it's just been uh, not top of mind, if it's sloppy research, or if it's just uh, a need to know basis and the public doesn't need to know kind of situation, or if this is just because the study is potentially so new that there's not uh, a sort of, you know, nicely designed, neatly uh, coordinated uh, methodology, uh, which is in, in my new book, that's what I'm arguing for, is to define these terms, to define the methodology, and to be able to even have a code of ethics uh, so that people everywhere are able to, in this interdisciplinary sense, contribute in the way that needs to be. This This would be uh, research for humanity. This isn't just one thing. If we were to find, I mean, think of the implications. If we were to find evidence for extraterrestrial life on a different planet, whether that be something that had gone extinct long time ago or what, um, it, it's it's so important to know that because what we can understand is you know, what led to the demise of that civilization and how mm, yeah. we might then prevent the same fate. There's many different things, and it's very important, um, you know, that that more people can get behind understanding this. I know I had some pushback when I published the article. I had a lot of negativity. Um, People were very upset, saying, "This is the last thing we need to worry about." You know, the money should go to other more important things. And you know, there those are valid points. I accept those points, but at the end of the day, somebody has to think about these things. And I would, I would argue that it's better to take a proactive approach rather than a reactive approach so that we can stop um, any potential bad outcomes that may be lurking around the corner. Uh, you touched on disclosure a number of times, and this is one of the other uh, questions you have. Will there be disclosure? When we had, uh, and we've had Dr. Loeb on a couple of different times, one of the things he did is he refused to sign a non-disclosure of his discoveries with the U.S. Space Command simply because he would not be able to uh, actively reveal his data to the general public. Now, in your uh, hypothesis on this, uh, or your theory on how this would work, it sounds fairly uh, formidable, but very doable. What is the disclosure aspect. I mean, if you were working with the military, 
who is paranoid? We all know and, and doesn't want to give out data. How do we work with uh, an agency of the government uh, with your protocol to end the force them to disclose this data? Well, that's that's very uh, important and, and great questions. Um, and these are the things that need to be actively pursued because uh, we're living in a, a very tumultuous with a lot of different uh, vested interests in power and uh, you know space. I would say we're in another space race, and to some degree, um, particularly with China, uh, these things are are so important right now that we would need that kind of cooperation and collaboration, but whether we're going to get that is, I mean, probably not, you know, so, so therein lies the problem is our lack of cooperation with not only other countries, but even other uh, academic institutions working together or other fields of inquiry working together. So the whole thing is very fragmented. And, and so I think that poses a real danger to our understanding and the potential for our understanding of these bigger, um, broader questions. Now, uh, this, uh, this is not something that people are unaware of. And that is, uh, this idea of the sort of ethics or, uh, the ethics behind the communication of findings, this sort of thing. And what I've done, you know, for my book, and I'm continuing to speak with some people and, um, I, I can't name names yet because they have yet to sign my um, release, you know, that I have to have people sign before I am I'm able to actually oh, publish the you. material. Yeah. Yes. So, but they, they will be named. Uh, I've <laughs> had a lot of great cooperation, great cooperation, but I've interviewed experts in space law from the Cleveland Marshall School of Law's Global Space Center. And that mm. is the only law school center in the United States that's dedicated exclusively to the study of laws of outer space. Hmm. which is interesting. Again, there's a whole journal that's published called Space Policy. And if you look at that, they've been dealing with these topics for a very long time. I'd recommend that journal um, to anybody. I think you can probably go to the library or, you know what, uh, you didn't hear it from me, but Sci-Hub, <clears throat> very great resource. But you go there and find some of those articles and you'll see that space policy uh, is a very real and active and growing field of inquiry to address those very things what are the laws? Who owns what? Who owns the information? Who owns the discovery? How do we compel or can we compel other countries to come forth with very important information, particularly if it has to do with the, uh, a threat? You know, how do we know if they don't find that there's a, okay, this is going to sound like out on a limb science fiction, but you know, just hypothetically, what would happen if we found out or suspected that say the Chinese government uh, was already in contact with extraterrestrials and they had made some sort of pact with them against, yeah. you know, their adversaries. How would we go about doing those things legally, ethically? What, what would we do in those situations? So while those things sound far-fetched, they sound sensational, um, it's, it's so important to look at these things and these possibilities early on so that we have a foundational sort of a, a conceptual framework of how we are going to address potential problems in the future. Uh, and so I know it sounds funny to people, oh, this is silly, you know, talking about little green men and all of this, but it's very important that we don't look at it that way. And instead we take a proactive approach and, uh, 
other people are. And that's what I hope to do in my work here is uh, kind of shine a light on individuals who are doing this. And so that it's a very serious thing. It's taken very seriously, maybe not in a community at large. It's still um, kind of worth giggle, a giggle here or there, like, oh, you know, aliens or whatever. But it's really, thankfully, uh, a field of inquiry that is being taken seriously uh, for many different uh, people in, in different fields. So I want to mention to our listeners that uh, Heather's article, The Final Frontier, will be available in its entirety. Uh, you can get it on uh, Facebook, go to Earth Ancients group or the international page, and you can uh, read it. It'll be linked to her website, which I will also say is very nice. I like it. It's very functional and easy to navigate. So uh, be sure to check that article out so you can, uh, we can't cover every detail in it. We, we It would take many hours. Um, Heather, I want to talk about a scenario and get your sense of it as a archaeologist. In 2002, a uh, space science journalist, Dr. Uh, Richard Hoagland, wrote a book called The Monuments uh, of Mars. You might have heard of it. And um, in the book, he collects a number of space scientists, uh, engineers, and satellite image specialists and, uh, and uh, review the images taken of an area of Mars known as Cydonia. Uh, so accurate and so uh, compelling was this data that uh, a number of Congress people began asking NASA, uh, and at this time, at that time, uh, JPL, what's going on? Uh, why don't we know more about this? And NASA summarily uh, denied any no any knowledge of this data, even in the face of uh, what looks like archaeological ruins on a significant scale, not just a few whole cities of uh, ru- ruined buildings. And I have in my uh, possession some of the, some of these images that are pretty compelling. Uh, to not first of all to not tell us more about this it seems like kind of a crime but if they were to come forward we're talking about nasa jpl and say yes we have found evidence of ruins what's the next step what what how, how i mean we know they've disclosed this but how do they go about uh imaging and getting a uh uh, boots on the on the on the surface to to begin looking at this it's the same kind of surveying that we do today or just kind of go over in your mind based on your writing, what you would, what we would do, how we would approach it. Yeah. Well, that's a very good question. I am familiar with uh, Richard C. Hoagland's work. Um, and unfortunately in a lot of the, you know, mainline literature, they have now referred to uh, sort of the public's propensity for the fantastic or sensationalism as the Sidonia effect. So he, if for, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's made a mark in that regard where yeah. uh, sort of in a derogatory way, like, uh, like archeologists will off, often refer to people as pyramidians because they say, they say pyramids everywhere. So a lot of what goes <laughs> on is just this yeah. <laughs> derogatory you know sort of framing so yeah. yes the Sidonia effect is uh something that has been addressed uh, in in a way that is uh the public's sort of enthusiasm now to me that's sort of missing the point that's a that's more of a pr question i think 
why are you spending so many, so much energy and spinning your wheels in such a way to worry about how to calm the public down? Whereas you should be spending that time doing actual science, uh, which wouldn't be saying, I don't have an opinion. I have uh, tools and a scientific method and let's apply those and see what comes out. So sort of a, a less, uh, emotional point of view of that. And so from my perspective, what they should do with those um, pictures and those images and those questions is not just go, oh, 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 that's, you know, fanciful talk. They should say, all right, uh, let's investigate this. Uh, and, and, you know, they have to some degree here or there, but ultimately uh, they, they could do so much more. So, some of the things they could do, again, it would fall under, uh, seeing that it's on Mars, uh, we would not necessarily be able to get there yet uh, mm. from, for a human exploration. Uh, but we could, uh, you know, use the remote sensing. So rover probes, things that we've sort of already done. But then there's also things to do, uh, you know, from Earth still. Um, there, it's been proposed to use pulse laser signals beamed uh, by oh, a large yeah. telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, of using laser uh, as opposed to radio waves, obviously the distances lasers can cover compared to radio waves. Um, so that way you, know, you could sort of figure that a relatively good telescope acting as a receiver, a laser beam could detect up to a distance of usually about a hundred light years, according to some. So, um, at that rate, you could do a whole lot of distance. You could cover a whole lot of area. Um, and also, uh, they carry more information than, than a regular radio wave alone. Um, that's exemplified in the preferred use of, uh, communications on earth. And so, mm-hmm. um, something like radio wave would again, a couple things in the way. One, stigma the stigma of even saying that you're going to take those ideas seriously and two funding so and those yeah. actually work hand in hand because it to, in order to get the funding uh released you have to convince people that this is a good idea and of course with that stigma you're going to look like the person you know who's saying no there's a face on mars we have to investigate <laughs> yeah 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 okay you know and that is unfortunately a big problem that we have that stops us from going forward with such research. And I, I feel that that's very unscientific. So the quest to preserve science, and you see this with archaeology all the time and other science fields, but especially with archaeology, uh, it's more of a defensive route. It's less of a security almost and being able to say, you know what, uh, we're going to use the tools and the methodologies we have in place and see if it stands up to that test and then analyze the results and move forward and and trust the scientific method. No, it usually happens now where it's a defensive you know point of view where it's well no those can't be you know that that can't be real or no that's not a pyramid and then we go <laughs> forth to disprove or debunk as opposed to coming in with you know trying to recognize those biases. So the point is that you have to go in and say okay c- could this be possible let's test this not no, this can't be, I'm not going to bother to even question it or, mm-hmm. or the opposite, you know, in fairness, oh yes, this is definitely, you know, an extraterrestrial artifact and we're going to, 
even if it's been disproven, we're going to, you know, insist still that it is. So that, that was something that happened um, with the discovery of a, a fossil evidence in a particular meteorite. Um, so there, there was something that was released uh, years ago in this meteorite. Uh, if anyone wants to Google it, it's ALH 84001. And that meteorite was formed uh, as a rock on what was probably a much more habitable Mars some 4 billion years ago. And it was believed to have been ejected from the Northern hemisphere of Mars uh, during an impact about 15 million years ago and was intercepted by earth about 13,000 years ago. And it was recovered from Antarctica uh, in 1984. And this, uh, it was, they, they did a study and they published it in 96. The authors entertained that the interpretation that structures identified in this meteorite were perhaps attributable to ancient astrobiological nanobacteria. And then that information was openly released to the public and it generated so much excitement um, that a statement on the discovery's importance was released by the president. But hmm. problem was uh, more research came out and that claimed to show the structures were abiogenic in nature. And this was responsible for huge disenfranchisement, cynicism, disinterest, and sort of a, a, a laugh, if you will. So after that, uh, kind of putting the cart before the horse, um, academia itself started feeling a little, you know, uh, hesitant or gun shy. They <laughs> yeah. said, we're not going to do that anymore because they did. They thought, hey, we found something. And, and so after that, you know, uh, subsequent research suggesting sort of this abiogenic origin for the structures, um, they, they just kind of fell by the wayside and everything appeared as a reversal of what they had initially put out that were far more exciting results. And it turned out to be sort of a, a, a lot of nothing. Mm-hmm. And then that, that, so that's when the, the, if you will, the mainstream, you know, the regular academics, uh, got gun shy after that, I would say, and then have pulled back completely and now like overcorrected. And they say, Nope, there's nothing, there's nothing at all. So and now so, they're super that, sensitized to any new discovery. Yes. yes. Yeah. And so then that's when they started uh, mm-hmm. referring to these sorts of, um, you know, identi- identifications of, of structures and whatnot as simply the Cydonia effect. Oh, uh, so it was, I would call that an overcorrection. So they were very gung ho at first, then kind of, you know, had to back off of that. Um, so, you know, it's it's a shame, but I'm hoping, you know, with with more people coming out and, and, and you know, in the mainstream, uh, like Dr. Loeb and people who are coming out and saying, this needs some serious consideration. This isn't people championing for a- the aliens. Um, this is something else. This is a, a responsibility of of ours since we are able to um, have these tools and think in these ways to look out into the cosmos, then we act, we sort of have a responsibility to our earth and our fellow men, you know, fellow humans to at least act defensively, try to figure out if, if, if we have our, uh, you know, defenses in line, if, if we could defend ourselves or are these things um, benevolent, are they benevolent or are they not interested at all? Or is this simply, you know, uh, some sort of epiphenomenon of the human experience. Yeah. Is this not even something, you know, what is this altogether? But exactly. I'm getting more hopeful. 
I'm getting more hopeful that people are trying to take this seriously now. The book's called, uh, the upcoming book's called The Final Frontier, Xenoarchaeology and the Interplanetary Search for Lost Civilizations. My guest today has been Dr. Heather Lynn. I want to ask you uh, as a final question, uh, Heather, what happens uh, with the disclosure that we are not alone, that there are perhaps ruins uh, on a neighboring planet uh, or first contact where one of these uh, UAPs lands and the guys come out, not necessarily at the White House, but uh, in a broader sense, and it isn't squelched by the military. <laughs> what, 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 well, I mean, uh, we had a, a former NASA astronomer who uh, actually uh, was uh, made sightings. He's in Southern California. He he actually reported on sightings of UFOs, and and he has been harassed, and oh. and his life has been ruined since this discovery. And I just, I mean, this is one of their own. <laughs> but I'm just uh, curious. I'm just curious. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's probably the area I'm most interested in. I mean, obviously, it's all fascinating. But given my background, uh, I am more interested, I think, in these this this cultural component of it. Mm-hmm. Um, another uh, NASA astronomer, Stephen J. Dick, uh, suggested once that cosmic evolution has three components, astronomical, biological, and cultural, mm-hmm. but that SETI uh, has generally focused on just the first two. And you even see that with some of the research and trying to discover, say, biosignatures or even the technosignatures of some of these, you know, um, interesting things like the Oumuamua or whatnot, but yeah. and that's all well and you know, and that's all well and good. But that third signature, it would be like a what you could call it, maybe a, a cultural signature, an archaeo signature, something that um, is is not being you know given the attention that it needs. And so I think that if we were to find out, um, you know, that we weren't alone or or what have you. And it goes without saying that it would be a huge disruption, even though many, many people, the majority now, according to Pew Research, believe that there are uh, sort of extraterrestrial life out there. That's not to say it wouldn't start making people really wonder. I, I like to think about, <laughs> as funny as it is, that the movie Prometheus, I think, struck a chord with me when I first saw it, where if, if anyone remembers, uh, it was sort of uh, the people found this. I think they called it. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but the engineers face to face with yeah. the engineers. Yes, and so they came. They had this sort of idea. Okay, well, if this is my maker, this is I don't know, like the, the one guy or whatever at the end. He sees it like yeah. this is the maker, so it's like something positive, and it turns out no, it's it's not, and so. I think the, that sort of captured or maybe a, a deep fear consciously that what if we were to find that, oh, that the maker isn't who we thought and that that would really pose oh, a question <laughs> and disruption to our entire psyche. psyche. Yeah. And so when people are, are looking for the, say, advanced piece of technological equipment that's made by an extraterrestrial intelligence to prove that there's this something, I think, perhaps, what if we ourselves are the advanced equipment? And so, oh, you know, yeah. that's, that's uh, some, yeah. So what would that, what would that mean then for us? Um, 
so I think it would uh, uh, completely upend our, our philosophical beliefs, our religious beliefs, and all of our cultural beliefs, which is another reason we should be proactively pursuing this and not by just laying it in the hands or the laps of 24 theologians, but instead uh, really getting the public involved, really trying to understand things a little bit more and having, um, you know, having some of these things questioned. So something that I always think about too is, you know, we're very, we anthropomorphize almost everything, whether it's our pets or, you know, plants or anything. Um, mm-hmm. And we cannot do that with an extraterrestrial of any sort because we have adapted and if you believe in adaptation by natural selection, you'll see that that's going to be dictated by the environmental pressures that we face on this planet. So those things make us who we are. So it's sort of a competitive world. It's a social you know, hierarchy. It's dog eat dog, et cetera. But what about another planet? What if another planet has a different way of distributing resources? What if another mm-hmm. organism didn't have the same environmental you know, uh, stressors. And instead they had different ones that allowed them to evolve in such a different way that on a cultural understanding level, there would be no way we could relate because we would first be saying, you know, well, how is this, how are they like us? And maybe in doing so having a lot of missteps where we misunderstand them. And so, you know, a lot of SETI and what the we've been doing thus far um, has been based on the Drake equation, and that's been a very communication-centric mode of looking for that uh, extraterrestrial life. But that another that is, in my view, another misstep of anthropomorphizing. Because who's to say that communication is even, you know, in the way we would understand it, an important um, feature of extraterrestrial life, given the way they may have evolved. Um, in their particular environment. So I, I love think, that. I think yeah. these are all important questions. So what would happen uh, as a final question for you? The final frontier comes out this fall. Uh, it, it, it's well-received. Most of your books are well-received. Uh, and you get an email from U.S. Space Command saying they want to meet with you. So you go to, to the Pentagon, you meet with them. And they say, we're going to give you the secret sauce, Heather but you have to sign a non-disclosure on whatever research you do in conjunction with us. What would you say? Wow. <laughs> that was quick. I want to get it out of here. I want to hear what you say. That's not an easy question because you're going to be given, and they're going to give you all the <laughs> They're going to give me this, the data. I, you know, that's a tough one because I have been okay. in situations. Um, I would say, um, you know, okay, I'm not to be trusted. I'm a renegade. So I'll just put Uh-oh. that out there for what that works. So maybe what I would do is go, mm-hmm. sure, and then find it. And if it was not that interesting, I would just keep the information, you know, a secret <laughs> and then keep that information. Then I would use it for my own research and try to, but if it was interesting, if it was something important, if it was very, very important, I think I'd have to break that non-disclosure agreement. Uh-oh. You know, so just keeping it real, I think I would go ahead and meet with them and take that information and see and determine, you know, is there a need to know? I, I, I'm too curious. I would have to do it, but yeah. I would I would take the risk and and just basically say, all right, do what you're going to do. But at least I'll die knowing. Well, <laughs> I, know I was going to say this is the problem. The, the, the mid, apparently, according to uh Marion Rudnick, the the astronomer we've had on our program, who's w- was with NASA for twenty years, 
there are men in black. They actually show up, take pictures. They disrupt your life. They jam your phones. They jam your. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, it's not something to to think of lightly yeah. because that can happen. Apparently. They're probably not going to call. I, I would. I wish they would. I doubt that they will because they probably know that I have a big mouth and I'd be posting it all over the blog. <laughs> I Cliff, I have news myself. for you. Cliff, I want to be on your program. I have news. <laughs> I would definitely do that because I have done that, which was one oh what got me into a situation with my very, very first report. So, oh. yeah, that's probably why they're not going to be looking to talk to me anytime soon. But hey, oh, and I guess you will never know. <laughs> <laughs> Heather, real fun. Uh, we're going to have to have you back when the book comes out. I think you mentioned before we started that. You think the book will be out this uh, fall, what, October, November, right? November. Yes. November. The pre-order is going to be uh, up here. I think actually pre-order is available, um, but it will be released in November. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Your website is heatherlynn.com, correct? DrHeatherlynn.com. It's drheatherlynn.com. Okay. Perfect. So those of you listening who want more information on this, uh, you can go to her beautiful website. Uh, the article is going to be available on Facebook, at Earth Ancients International Group page. And uh, looking forward to the book coming out again. We will all have uh, Dr. Lynn join us again to uh, discuss further ramifications of, of first contact and this scenario of uh, in introducing and working with uh, archaeologists to excavate would love to see that excavate the ruins or artifacts from an et civilization hey heather fun as always uh continue success and we will talk to you in the fall thank you so much cliff it's been really great and thank you to your audience as well as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming i wish i had used indeed if you need to hire you need indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast ditch the busy work use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and indeed doesn't just help you hire faster 93 percent of employers agree indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent indeed survey and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash podcast that's indeed.com slash podcast terms and conditions apply hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I have to admit that interview left me uh, satisfied to a degree uh, to have an academic begin thinking about uh, working in an environment where there are uh, extraterrestrial ruins uh, or a, uh, a, a piece of technology left on a planet, uh, an artifact. But really, what does Space Command know? What does, you, what does NASA, JPL know? In the face of evidence on Mars of just clusters of cities uh, on the edge of lakes, on the edge of oceans, in specific areas. And we're hearing just a, a real public-facing effort by NASA to tell us that these uh, billion-dollar rovers are designed for the search of microbes and evidence of water. It's kind of uh, doing us a big disservice by giving us this BS. <laughs> And I talk about it when we discuss Mars and what NASA is doing. You know, it's it's gone too far. You know, uh, give us the the, the uh, give us the meat and potatoes. We don't want the uh, we don't want the the storytelling of uh, what you're trying to do there. I I'm waiting for NASA to be outed, and I say this every time we talk about Mars. It's either going to be the Chinese that go, oh, what did we find here? These are temples, pyramids. Uh, in some places on Mars, they've even speculated that there's, uh, looks like uh, Sphinx, head of an, uh, a human or a being, body of a Sphinx. Graham Hancock actually has a whole chapter on this. And, the, uh, and by the way, the book's called The Mystery of Mars. And he believes there could be a connection between dynastic Egyptians and an ancient race on Mars. So you got to get that book. So, you know, in the face of all this work, in the face of Dr. John Brandenburg's disclosure of a nuclear bomb going off on Mars, it's time to give us the real story, not this uh, microbe search. I mean... Even that is a waste of money, I think. I don't care if there's microbes on Mars. <laughs> you know, uh, I guess it's okay if there's water. Uh, but a lot of uh, scientists who have been on Earth Ancients have said that, you know, Mars could be a mirror of Earth in the, in the distant future. If uh, Brandenburg's correct that we should be looking closer at nuclear weapons and evidence of great uh, destruction on Mars that may have been the uh, terminating event, then we need to see, we need to dis discover, we need to research this evidence. We need to see how it, uh, nuclear destruction killed the planet. And if possible, who were the warring factions? You know, who, who, were, the, uh, who were the race that uh, dropped these bombs on uh, the, the Martians? So... Lots of questions, much more interesting than microbes and evidence of water. And, uh, you know, when it becomes public knowledge, it, I, I want it to be in my lifetime. And if it's, if it's Chinese that expose NASA, so be it. Of course, that would, to my mind, 
that would be the final act of anybody who's in the administrative department of NASA. They should be all let go and others should be brought in. The same thing with U.S. Space Command. You know, these are the guys who are changing the narrative from unidentified flying objects to unidentified aerial phenomenon. Hey, what did you do that for? Uh, we don't know. We just decided we want to change it. It was time for an update. No, it's, that's too easy. Uh, does this mean that you are changing the Brookings Institute document? Are you now having it rewritten? That yes, Americans wholeheartedly uh, would welcome an alien presence and welcome them to our planet. Uh, would this be a chance to know that we're not the only ones in our cosmos, in our universe? Where do we sit? Where are we on the evolutionary scale? You know, it's funny because we have these TV programs like Star Trek that have these these narratives, you know, uh, uh, first contact with a, a young, te technologically young race, the prime directive of not exchanging technology, blah, blah, blah. Let's let's uh, let's make this happen. <laughs> you know? And I got to thank uh, Heather for coming on and um, posing uh, these questions and coming up with solutions as to how we address them. So she'll be back in November. As she mentions, the book is being released in November. We'll get more detail from the book and it'll be a pleasure to have her back. So I hope you found that, uh, found that interesting. <laughs> I sure did. I, I uh, you know, I want to get uh, Marion Rudnick back to see what he's up to with uh, NASA and the men in black. And, and I have uh, been asking for an ex-JPL person to... I had a couple of leads to engineers at JPL that may be able to shed some light on what's going on after hours, after the public has left and uh, the bogus claims of looking for microbes in water have gone out the window, or that file is shut, and then the other file opens on the discoveries of uh, the ruins, the buildings, the temples, the technology that's strewed all over the planet in the wake of a disastrous event, either nuclear or uh, geological. We just don't know. So, yeah, get somebody like an engineer on here and go, yeah, Cliff, we have found significant ruins, and this is how we're approaching it. <laughs> God, would that be great. Okay, enough of that. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing Heather in the fall. Hey, if you're enjoying Earth Ancients, please consider becoming a subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you can support the work we do here on the program. And, you know, it costs money to put Earth Ancients, Destiny, and Special Edition, the archives, on the air. It's just, it's a lot of man hours, it's a lot of editing, it's a lot of work, and you're... A subscription of five, ten, fifteen, even twenty dollars a month makes a huge difference. To become a subscriber, go to Patreon. That's p a t r e o n dot com forward slash Earth Ancients, and it takes care of everything for you. Just give them your ATM card or your credit card. They deduct it each month, and you don't even think about it. And I'll tell you. I and my team really appreciate it. We got some gifts for you. We're up to about uh, 29 ebooks. Many are from the authors, the research investigators who are on our program. 
Uh, there's also complete programs, uh, which without ed- uh, without advertising, you can uh, listen to the show without advertising. And then there's some galleries. There's some um, uh, unpublished uh, interviews that you're welcome to listen to. And occasionally I get online and I uh, welcome everybody. We have a little discussion. So again, for more information and to uh, subscribe, go to patreon.com forward slash Earth Ancients. Hey, we're in the summer and guess what? Earth Ancients has dynamite t-shirts. We got six really, really cool t-shirts. We got one uh, for Mexico, one for Egypt one uh, in general with our original logo, Earth Ancients. Um, But all of them are world-class, very, very uh, well-conceived and designed. And to get a hold of one of these t-shirts, we're having a sale right now. It's 30% off. Go to earthancients.com, go to products, open that, and you'll see a selection of wonderful t-shirts. I think uh, the favorite so far is the, it's Lord Pakal. The Palenque King, and uh, it's very ornate, great, great work, and really looks good on white or black background. A lot of people pick the black background to uh, to check out. It's summer, so get an Earth Agents t-shirt. You'll really enjoy it, and they're discounted for the holidays. Uh, go to earthagents.com products, and you'll see the whole line. All right, that's it for this week. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Heather Lynn. It was great to have her back on the program. As always, our team of Ruth Thomas, Mark Foster, and the editing team. You guys are amazing. I thank you. And by the way, a happy 4th of July to you and yours uh, living in the United States. All right, take care, be well, and we'll talk to you next time. I have to admit that interview left me uh, satisfied to a degree uh, to have an academic begin thinking about uh, working in an environment where there are uh, extraterrestrial ruins uh, or a a piece of technology left on a planet, uh, an artifact. But really, what does Space Command know? What What does NASA, JPL know? In the face of evidence on Mars of just clusters of cities uh, on the edge of lakes, on the edge of oceans, in specific areas, and we're hearing just a a real public-facing effort by NASA to tell us that these uh, billion-dollar rovers are designed for the search of microbes and evidence of water. It's kind of uh, doing us a big disservice by giving us this BS. <laughs> and I talk about it when we discuss Mars and what NASA is doing. You know, it's, it's gone too far. You know, uh, give, us the, 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 uh, give us the meat and potatoes. We don't want the, uh, we don't want the, the storytelling of uh, what you're trying to do there. I... I'm waiting for NASA to be outed. And I say this every time we talk about Mars. It's either going to be the Chinese that go, oh, what did we find here? These are temples, pyramids. Uh, in some places on Mars, they've even speculated that there's uh, looks like uh, Sphinx 
head of an, uh, a human or a being, body of the Sphinx. Graham Hancock actually has a whole chapter on this. And the uh, and by the way, the book's called The Mystery of Mars. And he believes there could be a connection between dynastic Egy- Egyptians and an ancient race on Mars. So you got to get that book. So, you know, in the face of all this work, in the face of Dr. John Brandenburg's disclosure of a nuclear bomb going off on Mars, it's time to give us the real story, not this uh, microbe search. I mean, even that is a waste of money, I think. I don't care if there's microbes on Mars. <laughs> you know, uh, I guess it's okay if there's water. Uh, but a lot of uh, scientists who have been on Earth Ancients have said that, you know, Mars could be a mirror of Earth in the, in the distant future. If uh, Brandenburg's correct that we should be looking closer at nuclear weapons and evidence of great uh, destruction on Mars that may have been the uh, terminating event, then we need to see, we need to dis- discover, we need to research this evidence. We need to see how it, uh, nuclear destruction killed the planet. And if possible, who were the warring factions? You know, who, who, were, the, uh, who were the race that uh, dropped these bombs on uh, the, the Martians? So lots of questions, much more interesting than microbes and evidence of water. And, uh, you know, when it becomes public knowledge, it, I, I want it to be in my lifetime. And if it's, if it's Chinese that expose NASA, so be it. Of course, that would, to my mind, that would be the final act of anybody who's in the administrative department of NASA. They should be all let go, and others should be brought in. The same thing with U.S. Space Command. You know, these are the guys who are changing the narrative from unidentified flying objects to unidentified aerial phenomenon. Hey, what did you do that for? Uh, we don't know. We just decided we want to change it. It was time for an update. No. It's, that's too easy. Uh, does this mean that you are changing the Brookings Institute document? Are you now having it rewritten? That yes, Americans wholeheartedly uh, would welcome an alien presence and welcome them to our planet. Uh, would this be a chance to know that we're not the only ones in our cosmos, in our universe? Where do we sit? Where are we on the evolutionary scale? You know, it's funny because we have these TV programs like Star Trek that have these these narratives, you know, uh, uh, first contact with a, a young, te- technologically young race, the prime directive of not exchanging technology, blah, blah, blah. Let's let's uh, let's make this happen. <laughs> you know? And I got to thank uh, Heather for coming on and um, posing uh, these questions and coming up with solutions as to how we address them. So she'll be back in November. As she mentions, the book is being released in November. We'll get more detail from the book and it'll be a pleasure to have her back. So I hope you found that, uh, found that interesting. <laughs> I sure did. I, I uh, you know, I want to get uh, Marion Rudnick back to see what he's up to with uh, NASA and the men in black and and I have uh, been asking for an ex 
JPL person to, I had a couple of leads to engineers at JPL that may be able to shed some light on what's going on after hours, after the public has left and uh, the bogus claims of looking for microbes in water have gone out the window or that file is shut. And then the other file opens on the discoveries of uh, the ruins, the buildings, the temples, the technology that's strewed all over the planet in the wake of a disastrous event, either nuclear or uh, geological. We just don't know. So, yeah, get somebody like an engineer on here and go, yeah, Cliff, we have found significant ruins, and this is how we're approaching it. (laughs) God, would that be great. Okay, enough of that. Uh, We'll look forward to seeing Heather in the fall. Hey, if you're enjoying Earth Ancients, please consider becoming a subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you can support the work we do here on the program. And, you know, it costs money to put Earth Ancients, Destiny, and Special Edition, the archives, on the air. It's just, it's a lot of man hours, it's a lot of editing, it's a lot of work. And your uh, subscription of $5, 10 15 even $20 a month makes a huge difference. To become a subscriber, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Earth Ancients. And it takes care of everything for you. Just give them your ATM card or your credit card. They deduct it each month and you don't even think about it. And I'll tell you, I and my team really appreciate it. We got some gifts for you. We're up to about uh, 29 ebooks. Many are from the authors, the research investigators who are on our program. Uh, there's also complete programs uh, which without ed- uh, without advertising. You can uh, listen to the show without advertising. And then there's some galleries. There's some um, uh, unpublished uh, interviews that you're welcome to listen to. And occasionally I get online and I uh, welcome everybody. We have a little discussion. So Again, for more information and to uh, subscribe, go to patreon.com forward slash Earth Ancients. Hey, we're in the summer, and guess what? Earth Ancients has dynamite t-shirts. We got six really, really cool t-shirts. We got one uh, for Mexico, one for Egypt, one uh, in general with our original logo, Earth Ancients, um, but all of them are world-class, very, very uh, well-conceived and designed. And to get a hold of one of these t-shirts, we're having a sale right now. It's 30% off. Go to earthancients.com. Go to products. Open that. And you'll see a selection of wonderful t-shirts. I think uh, the favorite so far is the it's Lord Pakal, the Palenque King. And uh, it's very ornate. Great great work and really looks good on white or black background. A lot of people pick the black background to uh, to check out. It's summer, so get an Earth Agents t-shirt. You'll really enjoy it. And they're discounted for the holidays. Uh, go to earthagents.com products and you'll see the whole line. All right, that's it for this week. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Heather Lynn. It was great to have her back on the program. As always, our team of Ruth Thomas, Mark Foster, and the editing team. You guys are amazing. I thank you. 
And by the way, a happy 4th of July to you and yours uh, living in the United States. All right, take care, be well, and we'll talk to you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.